everybody. Good morning. I'm Pastor Mark. And again, welcome to Desert Foothills. Welcome uh, everybody online that watches. Uh, a couple hundred people a week get to worship with us online. It's, it's just a, a blessing. And uh, we love hearing uh, from you online too. So shoot, you know, leave a comment, shoot an email. Because we are in the second week of this series called Honoring Heritage, Leaving Legacy. Uh, we talked about, uh, Pastor Jeremy had a great message last Sunday about really honoring the heritage that we have of these great saints and martyrs, these heroes of the faith. Uh, like we used St. Valentine last week as an example. It was a really, really cool uh, illustration there. I learned a lot about it too. Uh, today I want to talk about honoring the heritage of ordinary people. So we kind of think of your spiritual parents or grandparents in the faith. Just ordinary people. But what I hope that you leave here with is an absolute amazement at how God works in and through ordinary people like me and you. You think about God's master plan for humankind, for all of creation, the whole human race throughout history, and the intricacies, uh, the, the wisdom and, and the power that he, he has to make everything fall into place for each and every one of us. And you can see that in your lives, I know, when you look back. God's hand protecting you certain moments in time, God's hand providing for you when you needed help. So just to give you a, a tiny little taste of the complexities of God's work. I want you to consider for a moment the launch of a rocket trying to get a rover to land on Mars. And I think of the, the brightest engineers and scientists on the planet working at NASA to calculate a launch window. And, and, and a launch window considers just a multitude of factors, more than I'm going to be able to name, but just some of the factors. First of all, nothing in space stands still. Right? Everything is in motion. Everything is revolving or orbiting around something else. You've got comets and asteroids flying through. You have to calculate that on your trajectory. Oh, yeah, let's not also forget when we're aiming at something, uh, it's not standing still, right? We have to shoot this rocket to where Mars will be seven, eight, or nine months from now, depending on where our orbits are together. Oh, yeah, and one more thing, the Earth, you know, the, the place where we're launching the rocket from, is itself spinning at 1,000 miles per hour. It's amazing that we can calculate and plan to, to again, launch this rocket, put this rover on a completely other planet. Now, just consider the power and the wisdom and the planning of God as he moves one person with one purpose through the eyes of a million needles to put him in the place that he wants him to be to do what God wants him to do at the exact time that God needs him to do it. And the example of a very ordinary person we're going to look at is Joseph. Joseph, what uh, Lynn read to us from Genesis. The full story of Joseph it covers Genesis chapter 37 all the way to 50, from 37 to the end. It's about the length of a short story. You could sit down, you could read it in one, in one sitting. I'd encourage you to do that uh, during the week. Because where we pick up the story 
here in our reading this uh, seventh Sunday after Epiphany is uh, uh, chapter 45. It's about three-fourths of the way through his story. A little footnote, this is not Joseph of uh, Mary's husband, uh, Jesus' birth. We just celebrated recently, of course. Uh, This is another Joseph who lived centuries and centuries before Jesus was born. He was actually the great-grandson of Abraham, you know, the famous father Abraham. Now, one of the points I want to make is that uh, he's an ordinary person from an ordinary family, and we know this because it's very clear, the scriptures don't hide it at all, they make it very clear that this is a very dysfunctional family, right? Like all of us, let's be honest, right? Normal, ordinary people. Now, you might think, well, these are shepherds. What could be more boring than a family of shepherds? But as this story unfolds, I want you to realize this has all of the family drama, all of the backbiting of the Duttons of Yellowstone, or if you're older, the Ewing family of Dallas. Some of them remember that, I'm dating myself. Uh, and first of all, let's just meet Joseph's father. His name is Jacob, and we read in uh, chapter 37, Jacob loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. Favoritism. And he didn't hide it. Now, parents, if uh, your kids are at kids' time right now, you could be honest. If you have a favorite, you could say, but I wouldn't advise it. But Jacob lets the whole world know who his favorite is. And what's so shocking about this is that of all the people in the world who should know better, it was Jacob. Because his father showed favoritism in his family. His father, Isaac, actually favored his brother Esau more than him. And his mom favored him more than Esau. But Jacob knew the sting of being passed over for the favorite. And it compelled Jacob, this is the dad, to to be a manipulator, to be deceptive for really his whole life. He was always trying to manipulate to get the outcome that he wanted, fair or not. But here he is, now he's a father, he has 12 sons, and again, right off the bat, very publicly, Joseph, second youngest, he is the absolute favorite of Jacob. And this is obviously going to lead to more trouble as we go down the road. This dysfunctional family obviously had sibling rivalry, sibling rivalry, any of you have siblings, you know a little bit about this, Uh, but again, just imagine being in this it's almost like a generational sin of favoritism going through this family and growing up and having this tension between this brother and brother. So uh, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, and he brought their father a bad report about his brothers. And the, the Hebrew word here is he whispered. Like he whispered something negative. You put the, the worst spin on the situation. So maybe Joseph was a tattletale, certainly possible. We learn kind of a brat. But it could be also that he is the favorite. Maybe he was just kind of spying on his brothers at his dad's behest. But either way, here comes more and more tension in this dysfunctional family. One thing we can learn from this is that even in dysfunction, God is in control. Even in dysfunction and chaos, 
Nobody escapes God's control. The whole world is in God's control. And when you start to see this, you'll start to see your own life differently too. Another element from uh, Joseph's story, that uh, again, an ordinary person, is that we begin to see God's hidden hand at work in Joseph's life. Certainly not a perfect young man, far from it, and yet God still has a plan and a purpose for him, and God is going to make sure it comes about. One of the things uh, God does is gives Joseph dreams. Now, uh, Joseph has uh, dreams that all of his brothers are going to bow down in reverence to him. He's second youngest, ten older brothers. Now, again, the mistake he made is that he told his brothers about this dream. And you would think, why? Even the dullest of his brothers would be able to figure out what was going on in these dreams. And maybe it was his naivety. Maybe it was just he was so self-focused. Again, because his parents were so self-affectionate toward him. Uh, But there he is, uh, telling his brothers about this dream. You're all going to bow down and serve me, reverence me. Uh, This obviously starts to boil over in the hearts of his brothers. And actually, there's three verses here where they talk about how much they hated him because of these dreams and hated him even more. (laughs) The hate had been there for a little while. Now, they hate him even more. Hate. Hate boiling up inside of their hearts like lava below the surface, and it is about to blow the top off of this family. And then there is the special coat. You familiar with Joseph's multicolored coat? You familiar with uh, Joseph's uh, amazing Technicolor dream coat? Andrew Lloyd Webber. Turns out uh, it's not so much the colors that made it special. What we uh, see in the, in the Hebrews that this is a special coat. It, it was a long sleeve coat and went all the way down to his ankles. This was not a, a coat for doing day labor, right? You're not going to put on a, a trench coat if you're going to be out tending sheep or picking them up and carrying them or feeding them or uh, fixing the fence or digging a well. Okay, this coat that his father gave to him signifies to everybody from now on Joseph is management, not labor. And how do you think they felt about that? Well, here again in 37, they saw Joseph coming from afar. Man, they could see that coat from a mile away. And before he even got there, it, he, it was so far off when they saw him, they had plenty of time to start conspiring about how they were going to kill him. And of course, get away with it. Now I'll give Reuben a little credit. Reuben's one of his brothers. Reuben actually spoke up and he said, you know, let's not kill the boy. I mean, he is our brother after all. Here, there's this well. Let's just throw him in this pit and leave him there. Well, okay. I said, all right, we'll do that. We'll do that. And, and just as uh, they were getting ready to throw him in the pit, they see a caravan coming over the horizon. Uh, these nomads, traders. And they said, wait, 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 wait. Better idea. Let's sell him as a slave to this caravan. They can take him off wherever. Aha, that's it. So that's what they do. They sell him for 20 pieces of silver. And then they take this coat, this beautiful long coat off of him, strip him of it, kill a goat, dip it in blood so they can go back to their father 
and say, oh no, a wolf came and killed your son. I'm so sorry. Ugh, it's awful, isn't it? Yeah, too bad. Meanwhile, Joseph is taken off to Egypt and he ends up working in the house of one of the court officials of Egypt, Potiphar. And over the years, Joseph proves himself to be quite reliable, insightful, actually a pretty good leader. He works his way up to being head of the whole household. Uh, if you've, anybody went to Downton Abbey? Anybody? It was, so Joseph is like the butler, right? He's over all the servants now, down in the servant quarters. Until he gets falsely accused. Falsely accused, Potiphar gets very angry at him, has him thrown in prison. And he's in an Egyptian jail for two years. His life is getting pretty hard. But while he's in the prison, again, he's recognized for his insight, his leadership. He actually moves up to basically kind of being in charge of the prison, prisoners. And then God provides this amazing opportunity. Based on uh, people he met in prison, went back to cupbearer for Pharaoh, goes back, serves Pharaoh. Pharaoh starts having these crazy dreams. They're just disturbing him. He doesn't know what to do with these dreams. He's talking to everybody, talk to his magicians and counselors. They can't give him any help. Finally, somebody who had ran into Joseph at the prison said, hey, I know somebody who had a story about dreams. He's here because of dreams. And he can interpret dreams. Pharaoh's like, hey, I'll give it a shot. Bring him here. So Joseph comes and he interprets this dream that Pharaoh had. And this is the meaning of the dream. It was that Egypt was going to experience seven years of plenty, of harvest, followed by seven years of absolute famine. So what do we do? We prepare now. We save and we store these next seven years so we'll be ready and we'll be able to survive through the seven years of famine. Well, Pharaoh's very grateful. Again, over time, sees his insight, sees his leadership, <clears throat> moves his way up. First, he's in charge kind of over this plan. Okay, let's, you're in charge of storing the grain and storing our supplies. All the way up until Pharaoh names him COO. Okay, he's the chief operation officer of Egypt. He's second in command. His chariot follows right behind Pharaoh's chariot when they go down the street. So there he is. He's in Egypt. We get two years now into the famine, nine years in prison, two years in prison. So it's been about 20 years since he has seen his father, 20 years since he's seen his brothers, 20 years his father thinks he's dead. The famine hits the whole region. Even the people in Canaan are starving to death now. And so Jacob, very old now, sends his sons down to Egypt. It's the only place that has food because thanks to Joseph, right? Being ready. So through some interactions, we'll fast forward a little bit. Um, there's some tension. Joseph puts his brothers in suspense. But in the end, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And amazingly, he forgives them. And he ends up providing the food, the necessities, for his family, blessing them, blessing them, even though they had caused him great harm and meant evil for him. Joseph is able to say, and this is our reading today, we're in 45 now, tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you've seen and bring my father down here quickly. 
That sounds like a man who longs for his father to be proud of him. That sounds like a man who honors his heritage. Like, Dad, you led this nation, our great family. Come down here and look, see what I'm, what I'm doing now. And come quickly, again, because he's old and traveling is going to be difficult. The big lesson in all of this is that there is a design hidden inside our pains, the pits that we fall into, the heartaches that we have. God has a master plan that he is orchestrating. And it's so complicated we couldn't begin to understand it. So uh, no matter how often we ask, why God, why, 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 if he started to explain it, it, we wouldn't understand. It's too complicated. But there's a purpose. And here's what I want you to really remember. So you don't, you don't have to know why. You don't have to understand to believe that God has a purpose, to trust that God has a plan. And it is a master plan for you, for all of humanity. Uh, Joseph was able to say to his brothers, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. God's hidden hand, again, weaving his plan throughout all of human history, through each individual and ordinary person. The world cannot escape God's control. Nobody can escape God's control. Now, I started talking about the complications of a launch window for a rocket. Here's something I want you to notice in Joseph's story, chapters 37 to 50. There is not one single miracle. Never in Joseph's life does God suspend natural law in order to bring about his plan? God works through ordinary people in our ordinary daily lives. Many times it's hidden. Many times we don't know why or understand, and we certainly can't see where it's going to end up. But we know God is in control. And he's working all things for good. Because he's in control, we can learn that God turns evil into good. God turns evil into good. We can always trust that fact. We've seen it over and over in our heritage, and certainly God is the same today. Now, that does not mean that the disease was good, or the divorce was good, or the death was good. It was evil. And our enemy meant it for evil against us, but God will use it for good. He'll make it good. God turns evil into good. Second, God is with us. What a great promise that is. When Joseph was in the pit, God was with him. When Joseph went down into Egypt, God went with him. When Joseph was in prison, God was with him, strengthening, making him head over the whole prison. And it makes me remember uh, the Apostle Paul. who wrote that suffering produces perseverance, 
Perseverance produces character, and character produces what? Hope. Hope doesn't disappoint because it's God's hope that he's pouring out into our hearts. Joseph, through all of the pits that he went through in life, the perseverance, the pain, God was forming the character. He was no longer the little bratty brother that he was. Let me tell you about this dream. Let me show you all my, my cool coat, guys. Right? God had formed him to a man of character, a man of leadership and insight through all of those things because God was always with him and God is always with you. And the most important lesson that we really learn here is that forgiveness is abundant. Joseph was the COO of Egypt. He had the power, and let's be honest, from our perspective, he had the right to punish his brothers when they came to him looking for food. He could have taken his pound of flesh. He could have taken his revenge on those brothers. But he was gracious. He forgave them. He wept over them. And let's be honest, our God has the power and he has the right to punish me and you. But he's gracious. (laughs) He loves us, he forgives us, and he weeps over us. In our gospel reading today, Jesus challenges us, right? Love our enemies and do good to them who persecute you. Joseph's brothers were his enemies there for a long period of his life. But God says to be merciful and abundant in forgiveness. Now we look at honoring our heritage, our spiritual parents, our spiritual grandparents. I want to introduce you to somebody. Some of you may know, many of you don't know, never met this man. He's passed away now. But uh, his name is Pastor Gene Beyer. And he is the founder, he is the church planter of Desert Foothills Lutheran Church here in Scottsdale, Arizona. An ordinary man, born in Michigan, God directed his life and his family and the whole world to bring him to Arizona in 1968, 54 years ago. That seems like a long time to me. He came to Mount Calvary Lutheran Church here in Phoenix, which invigorated his vision of the area's potential and allowed him to help build Lutheran foundations in what was to become a large metropolitan area. Boy, if he had any idea how large this valley would become in 54 years. While at Mount Calvary, he created and built the congregations of Shepherd of the Desert, Desert Foothills Lutheran Church, and actually this is from his obituary, but he he was church planter for seven or eight other Lutheran churches here in central Arizona, basically all of them that you know of. He at least... Uh, initiated or, or participated in. This great passion that he had uh, <clears throat> for his faith and his Lord, uh, more than the opportunity to build a congregation from the ground up. This is our first pastor here. What a great heritage he leaves to us. A passion for connecting people to Jesus in our city. More and more people in our community more and more people are moving to Arizona. And when we honor those people from our heritage, 
We're just remembering the work of God in their lives. Everything that uh, we admire, uh, heroes of the faith to spiritual parents, it is the work of God in their lives. It is his master plan coming together that we recognize now, looking back, and we are in awe of God's work. And the same God is working through us here today. So let's uh, pray uh, and thank God for this rich heritage that we have and, and uh, ask him, to, of course, to continue to bless our efforts. Heavenly Father, you are Heavenly Father. We thank you that we are in your family, that you've adopted us in baptism, that you have nourished us on the food of your word and your sacrament. And we thank you for the great vision that you've cast before us from uh, Pastor Beyer and the founders of this congregation and from, uh, again, the generations before them that inspired them as well uh, to connect people to Jesus, to spread your gospel here in this city. And we pray you continue to strengthen our efforts, grant us your wisdom to go forward in faith and, and to have that faith, that courage to step out into, well, just trusting that you're going to be there and you're going to provide and you're going to bless. For these things, Lord, for the efforts of a growing legacy campaign, we ask your richest blessings in Jesus' name. Amen.